I'm Gunnar Hauser. I'd like to welcome you back for another episode of Ancient Weirdness. By the way, the response to the show has been great. Keep the emails coming. Follow the show on Twitter, at Ancient With. Today's segment is going to be dedicated to something that, unfortunately, we are experiencing right now, and this is the phenomenon of a pandemic. Obviously, COVID-19 is not the first pandemic in history. You hear a lot about the Spanish flu, as it's often called, of roughly 100 years ago. Well, we have epidemics and pandemics from ancient times as well, and I'm going to be covering a number of them that struck in the Mediterranean world in both Greek as well as Roman times. And we're going to start with the very famous plague, as it's called, the Plague of Athens, early in the Peloponnesian War. Now, we mainly know about its effect on Athens itself. It is said to have struck other areas in Greece, Greek islands, the Persian Empire, Egypt. Our main source for it is the historian Thucydides, very highly regarded writer of history, who actually caught this plague and survived it. So he was an eyewitness to its effects. To understand why the plague in Athens was so bad, you have to understand what was going on right at the beginning of the Peloponnesian War. The strategy that Athens had at the beginning of the war was one that was attributed to their politician Pericles. Pericles advocated the idea that the Athenian citizens who lived in villages, farms, rural areas all around the territory of Attica, which is the peninsula that was controlled by Athens, that everyone should move inside the fortification walls of the city center and also the walls that they had that protected the important road that led down to the Piraeus Harbor. These walls are often called the Long Walls. Pericles stated that the Athenians should not risk a pitched land battle against the Spartans because it was the one thing that the Spartans were great at. However, he said the Athenians have control of the sea with their navy. So the idea was to bring everyone inside the walls, and food and supplies would be brought in by ship to the Piraeus. The Spartans would come up, ravage the countryside, but they wouldn't be able to get inside the fortification walls. The Greeks were not particularly good at siege warfare at this time in their history. Pericles said the Spartans will eventually give up, they'll realize they can't make any headway, and they'll cut a deal with us. The war broke out in 431 B.C., And at first, Pericles' strategy did seem to work as intended. But you have a lot of people, thousands of people, crammed into this area inside the city walls and the long walls. Then a ship sailed into the Piraeus Harbor, bringing the plague with it. Now, when I say plague, that is the standard translation of the Greek word loimos that Thucydides uses. The identity of the germ that caused the so-called plague of Athens is still being debated today. There's been dozens of different microbes, diseases that have been proposed as the cause of it. Thucydides says that it started down in Ethiopia, spread through Egypt and the Persian world before it came to Athens. He gives a very detailed description of the symptoms. He suffered from it, so he would know. And it's a good thing that he survived, or we wouldn't know much about the Peloponnesian War in general today. He says that the disease started in the head and worked its way down through different parts of the body. So it started with headache and redness in the eyes. As it moved down to the throat and chest, it led to hoarseness, coughing. Then as it reached the guts, it led to the vomiting of bile. The skin would take on a red and livid appearance. Victims felt that their skin was burning up. 
And Thucydides claims that they could not stand to have blankets or even clothing touching their skin. And the extreme thirst created by this burning sensation led them to jump into available water. Everything from streams to cisterns and wells to the public fountains that they had in Athens. They would go into a delirium. Survivors would lose extremities or quite often their sight. Thucydides says that it led to a general breakdown of law and order in the city, that people just started to indulge whatever desires they had suppressed up to this point. Those who survived seemed to think that they were now invincible. He also said that it created a crisis of faith among many of the Athenians. Many of them lost faith in the gods to protect them. Now, there were some that said that the god Apollo, who's often characterized as a bringer of illness in Greek mythology, that Apollo had actually taken the Spartan side, and this is why the plague had struck Athens. Thucydides says that the dead were often left unburied by their family and friends, that they did not receive the normal funeral rites, and that was a really big deal in ancient Greek culture. If you didn't get funeral rites, your ghost was condemned to wander the earth in torment. Bodies left outside would normally have been devoured by animals, birds and dogs. But Thucydides says that birds and dogs who ate of the corpses died soon afterwards themselves, and so they learned to avoid eating the flesh of the dead. They have found several plague pits in Athens with a large number of skeletons contained within them. There was one found a few decades ago that had almost 250 people buried there. And by studying DNA preserved in the pulp and the teeth of some of these skeletal remains, a proposal was made that it was a disease called typhoid. Typhoid is generally only seen in the third world today. It happens especially after natural disasters when water supplies get contaminated. But again, some people have disputed those findings. We just don't know what disease caused it. It's possible that it's a disease that doesn't really exist anymore, that it has mutated or changed or evolved so much in the thousands of years since then that it is no longer recognizable in the world today. Now, the plague didn't end the war. It didn't knock Athens out of the war. It just caused great suffering. It's estimated that it might have caused up to 100,000 deaths in Athens. The most high-profile victim was none other than Pericles himself. If there was any good effect, it was that the Spartans stopped invading Attica because they were afraid of taking the plague home with them to Sparta. Now, what's really interesting about Thucydides' description of the plague is that his stature as a writer led those who described later pandemics that we're covering today in almost exactly the same way, but having an origin somewhere in the region of Ethiopia, just a place that seemed very exotic to Greeks. Also, the description of symptoms even could sometimes echo the wording of Thucydides. That's how influential this guy could be. But it complicates the picture for us trying to understand these pandemics. The next pandemic that we're looking at is one that struck the Roman Empire in the second century AD. This is the one that's generally called the Antonine Plague. That is because there was a dynasty of Roman emperors in charge, and they weren't all necessarily related by blood to each other, but they were related by ties of adoption. And this larger Antonine family gives its name to this group of emperors. It began in 166. At this time, there were two men who were actually colleagues, sharing the job of emperor, Marcus Aurelius and Lucius Verus. 
The Romans had fought a series of wars off and on for centuries already with an empire to the east called the Parthian Empire. Lucius Verus led a campaign into Parthian territory in the year 166. They lead siege to a town called Seleucia, located in what is now Iraq, and they were able to loot and plunder several temples and other important sites in the area. So it was a successful campaign. However, the troops brought an illness back with them. We have a description of the Antonine Plague written by a doctor, a physician named Galen, became very, very famous in the history of medicine. Galen was an eyewitness to victims of the Antonine Plague. He saw victims at Rome and also a few years later at a Roman army camp near Aquileia in northern Italy. He describes a severe cough that would bring up blood and also scabs, as if there was scabbing inside the throat, the windpipe, and the airways. That the skin would be covered with a kind of crusty, dark shell by the ninth day. And quite often that the victim would pass blood in their stool, which Galen claimed was a sign of almost certain death. This description has led a number of historians, physicians, medical researchers today to propose that the Antonine Plague was smallpox and that it might have spread from China to Parthian territory and thence to Roman territory. At this time, China was under the rule of the Han Dynasty, and smallpox may have been one of the catalysts for a very strange event in the history of China. A group whose name is translated as the Yellow Turbans coalesced around a messianic leader who claimed to be able to heal smallpox by forgiving the sins of penitent Chinese people. This led to a violent uprising against the government and the deaths of thousands. In some ways, the most interesting report of the Antonine Plague comes from an orator named Elias Aristides. He was from the town of Pergamum in Asia Minor. He wrote a number of famous speeches and orations, but he also wrote something about himself, a kind of strange chronicle of his own illness and struggles against illness, which is called in English the Sacred Tales. In the Sacred Tales, Elias states that he enjoyed good health in his childhood, teenage years, and even his youth. And then something happened at age 26, which we calculate would have been the year 144 AD. He developed what seemed like a fairly common ailment of a sore throat, but then he decided to undertake a journey from Pergamum to Rome in the wintertime. And this severely exacerbated his problems. It led to chills and an earache and shortness of breath. Then he had what he described as bloating in his stomach and guts. He consulted doctors of the time who gave him purgatives, things designed to make him have diarrhea and vomiting. They used a plant called elaterium, commonly called squirting cucumber for this purpose. They also did bloodletting on him, which just made him weaker and more susceptible to infection. He did eventually return home, but not to good health. He spent the next 46 years dealing with a whole barrage of physical problems. Some historians have thought of him as the worst hypochondriac in world history. He consulted the god Asclepius, the healing god, who I covered in an earlier episode when I was talking about dreams and how ancient Greeks and Romans would sleep overnight or incubate in a temple to the god Asclepius, hoping to have a dream where Asclepius would appear and tell them what they needed to do to get better. He recounts several dream visions of the god Asclepius. The advice doesn't really seem too good. Asclepius told him at one point to jump into a river in the middle of December. He did it during a storm, in fact. And then he was told after dunking in the water, the frigid water, 
to stand wet and naked in the wind. So as you might expect, things just got worse for him. Got to the point where he could barely eat because his throat would close painfully anytime he tried to swallow food. Doctors even prescribed a narcotic, wormwood, which is used today to make something called absinthe. But he simply became addicted to the medication. He finally moved into a swelling of the groin and a severe fever. And then on top of everything else, at the age of 47, in the year AD 165, that's when the Antonine Plague began to afflict his vicinity. He describes it first attacking his servants, and then also beginning to kill off his livestock. And then he contracted it as well. He credits the advice of Asclepius as saving his life from the plague, however. The remedy was to eat goose liver sausage. He says it worked. What can we say? He stated to have finally passed away at the age of 72. Estimates of the death toll from the Antonine Plague go into the millions, anywhere from three to five million inhabitants of the Roman Empire. That would not be counting people outside of Roman territory. Lucius Verus was killed by the Antonine Plague, according to accounts. It's quite possible that the Antonine Plague also carried off the other emperor, Marcus Aurelius. He was engaged in a campaign against a tribe called the Marcomanni along the Danube River in Central Europe at the time. You have to understand the Antonine Plague as striking at a time when the Roman Empire is considered to have been at its height. After the death of Marcus Aurelius, we get the Emperor Commodus. For a little bit of context there, Commodus is the evil emperor in the movie Gladiator. The next pandemic was also seen during the time of the Roman Empire. In this case, about a century later than the Antonine one, beginning in the year 249 AD. So for a little background here, the plague of Cyprian is just one of a series of major crises that struck the Roman Empire. Not just the plague, but massive invasions on almost every border of the empire. A new, very aggressive Persian dynasty called the Sasanians attacked eastern provinces. All along the Rhine and the Danube, there were Germanic tribes, such as the Alemanni, the Saxons, the Franks, and the Goths that invaded Roman territory as well. The 3rd century crisis also included economic collapse and out-and-out civil war and many assassinations of emperors as well. In a 50-year period, there were roughly two dozen emperors who were officially recognized. Almost all of them died violent deaths of one sort or the other. There were whole areas of the Roman Empire that just broke away from central control. Gaul, what is now France, along with Spain and the British Isles, became a separate Gallic Empire. In the east, the caravan city of Palmyra, located in what is now Syria, became center of a breakaway state, which included Egypt at one point. This pandemic is often referred to as the Plague of Cyprian. Cyprian was a Christian bishop in North Africa, in what is now the country of Tunisia. And he gave a detailed description of this illness. In his book, On Mortality, he states that it was from Ethiopia, so you can see Thucydides' influence creeping in here. Cyprian says that the bodies of the victims would liquefy into diarrhea, that they felt burning, that rose in the throat and resulted in bloody vomiting. He described blood filling the eyes of the victim like fire, that feet and limbs became putrid, that deafness and blindness would result in survivors. Cyprian claims that the disease could spread through contact with clothing, or as he puts it, by sight. Now, that may not make a whole lot of sense, 
But you have to understand that in ancient Greek and Roman times, the general belief was that vision resulted from beams coming out of the eyes. They were actually projected from human eyes onto objects, and they bounced back. It's almost like bats using sonar when they screech to navigate around as they fly. Sometimes you might get the weird feeling that you're being watched. You look over your shoulder and someone is watching you. So who knows? There could be some weird thing behind this belief, even though no one would state that actually something projects out of the eyes that we know of. Probably by stating that it could be spread by sight, this would mean that the disease was airborne. Now, Cyprian was talking about this in a very specific way, too, by stating that as a Christian bishop, he saw both pagans and Christians being equally hit by the illness but that the Christian community was more steadfast in the face of it, that they took greater care of their sick and their dead than the pagans did because of the strength of their faith. Cyprian's statements about the Christian community are important because in some areas, Christians were blamed for the pandemic by the pagan majority. They became scapegoats and were persecuted and killed. Cyprian himself was martyred just a few years later in 258. Archaeologists have found remains of people that probably were killed by this pandemic. There's a burial pit known from Egypt where bodies were covered with lime to dissolve them quickly after burial. Again, the cause of the plague of Cyprian is debated today. Some historians think that it was a recurrence of smallpox. Some think it was some kind of viral hemorrhagic fever along the lines of Ebola. Some have proposed that it was an early outbreak of measles, but that's been disputed. Measles seems to have developed later, closer to the medieval period. The plague of Cyprian also most likely caused the death of a Roman emperor. This was the emperor Claudius II Gothicus. He got that title because he won a massive victory over the Goths near a town called Naissus. This is in Serbia today. This happened in the year 268. Claudius II Gothicus had avenged a massive defeat under an earlier Roman emperor by the same group of Goths near a town called Abritus in what is now Bulgaria. The Emperor Decius, in an attempt to stop Gothic invasion in the year 251, had maneuvered his army into some unknown terrain, and he and his troops were trapped in a swamp and cut down. Decius' body was never recovered. It simply sank into the mud. That was the first time that a Roman emperor was killed by foreign invaders. So Claudius II Gothicus had really avenged a serious blow to Roman prestige. It is recorded that he died of pestilence soon afterwards, and most likely it was the plague of Cyprian. Maybe the most surprising thing about the 3rd century crisis is that the Roman Empire actually survived it. Near the end of the 3rd century, an individual named Diocletian became emperor after winning a civil war against one of his rivals. It was a pattern that had repeated itself many, many times for decades. So if you were observing that at the time, you might not have thought that he would survive much longer than his predecessors. However, he stopped the downward spiral, reinvented the Roman Empire. That is another story, however. And for our last ancient pandemic, we are looking at the so-called Plague of Justinian. Named after the Emperor Justinian, who ruled from Constantinople. Now, some background here. The Roman Empire had formally split by the end of the 4th century into western and eastern halves. The capital of the eastern half was the city of Constantinople, Constantine City, named after the first Christian Roman Emperor. He had built an eastern capital on the site of an old Greek city called Byzantium. 
Byzantium had a very strategic location on the European side of the Bosporus, the strait that connects the Black Sea to the Mediterranean Sea, also on the site of what is now the city of Istanbul, Turkey. The western half of the empire did not last. The traditional date for its fall is 476 AD. That's when the last emperor of the West, Romulus Augustulus, was deposed from power, and the western half of the Roman Empire fractured into a series of Germanic kingdoms, ruled by the various Germanic tribes that had migrated into Roman territory. But to say that's the fall of the Roman Empire is really misleading, because the eastern half continued, and for a very long time after that. Justinian had even been able to recover portions of the old western empire through great military effort. It is said to have killed roughly one-fifth the population of Constantinople, which was the largest city of the Roman world at this time. It had supplanted Rome. This illness does appear to have been an early appearance of the same disease agent responsible for the much more famous Black Death of the Middle Ages. This is the bacterium called Yersinia pestis. Writers of the 6th century that describe it include the historian Procopius, who's left us many writings about the wars undertaken under Justinian's rule, as well as descriptions of the city of Constantinople itself. His description of this pandemic is incredibly vivid. He claims that people in the capital city who came down with the illness saw apparitions right beforehand. He attributed this to the intervention of spirits right before they got sick. And then when they were caught in the throes of delirium, they often thought that friends and relatives who were trying to care for them were also evil spirits and would try to chase them away. Procopius describes bubonic swellings in the throat, the armpits, the groin of victims. This testimony is important for historians today in identifying the disease as plague. However, the strongest evidence comes from skeletal remains that have been found in Germany the date to the 6th century, that show evidence of Yersinia pestis. Patients would vomit blood. They would often fall into a delirium and then a coma. But if the buboes burst and drained, there was a chance that the victim would recover. According to Procopius, the problem of disposal of the dead in Constantinople became so acute that storage towers were opened up. They would tear the roof tiles off of them, Bodies were simply thrown in until they reached the brim of the top of the tower, and then the tiles were replaced, and the bodies simply left there. And that an almost indescribable stench wafted through the streets of the capital whenever the wind blew from the direction of the towers. Now Justinian caught this illness and recovered from it. Still very ruthless in his tax collection, despite the pandemic, mandated that families still pay the same amount per family member despite having lost these family members to the plague. In his work, which has a title that's usually translated into English as The Secret History, which mentions this tax assessment, he also states that Justinian was secretly possessed by a demon, and that if you peeked in on him late at night as he worked in his office, you could see his head pop off of his shoulders and float across the room. Another author who describes it was the church historian Evagrius Scholasticus who lived in the town of Antioch, or Antakya, Turkey, today. He caught it in childhood and survived, but he lost many relatives, both at that time and also later in his adult life. He lost his wife and children to it, because this disease persisted. There were recurrent outbreaks over the next two centuries in the Western world. It struck not only the entire Mediterranean, but also far north into Europe. 
and the death toll has been estimated at anywhere from 25 to 100 million people. So pandemics are an unfortunate part of human history. You may ask why pandemics eventually die down. It seems that the more virulent the microbe is when the pandemic begins, the faster it's going to kill its victims. If it works too well, if the mortality rate is too high, the disease does not have a chance to spread to more hosts. So the tendency is for these germs to mutate to less virulent forms. However, even when that happens, these microbes can resurface in periodic smaller outbreaks, as happened with the Plague of Justinian, as well as the later Black Death. Thanks very much for joining me today. The musical credits are Magical Gravitation from RoyaltyFreeMusic.com and Golden Panthers and Pink Lions by Christian Anderson at EpidemicSound.com. Stay tuned for the next episode of Ancient Weirdness with Gunnar Hauser.